Hello and welcome to podcast number 18 of the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. I am Matt Taini and today we are going to talk about two, I have two subjects in mind. We're going to talk about director sportifs and I'd like to talk about my favorite race in the entire world, the Giro d'Italia. So let's go ahead and get started with uh, director sportifs. So it's French for sporting director. The definition is a person directing a cycling team during a road bicycle racing event, equivalent to a manager in baseball or a head coach in American football. So the director sportif is usually a former cyclist, um, a former racer. Um, And on that note, as they're a former racer, from my experience, they are typically not the best former racer, such as uh, Greg LeMond or let's say uh, Greg LeMond, maybe um, Bernard Hinault or uh, Eddie Merckx. Any of these super famous greatest bicycle racers of all time are typically not the ones who become director sportifs. Um, it's usually uh, kind of the same as like you would see in, as an example, American football, like in the NFL. Um, a lot of the head coaches are former players um, that uh, are kind of students of the game. And that's kind of how I see a lot of these um, former racers who become director sportifs. They're, they're obviously were good enough to become professional racers, which is a huge accomplishment, but they are... Um, uh, think a little deep more deeply about the sport than than the greats who don't have to think as much about that kind of stuff because they're great so the director sportif uh, they kind of run a team in almost every facet um, especially when the team is small um, the bigger teams they may divide up some of the stuff a little bit more um, as far as uh, some of the duties or uh, the logistics uh, such as flights and hotels and driving um, helping hire mechanics and uh, massage therapists, directing them to do some tasks uh, that are not in their immediate sphere, uh, such as vehicle maintenance, rack installation, airport runs, and other miscellaneous tasks. And of course, uh, in race direction as well, um, as overall race strategy meetings before a race um, even begins. Um, They're also uh, typically in charge of hiring racers, and again, this may differ on a larger team. Um, they may have uh, a, a few more people involved, but some of the teams that I worked for were were not real big. We had uh, one of the teams I worked for, Chevrolet LA Sheriffs, who just had one director sportif uh, manager who actually did all the stuff that I just listed um, with a little bit of help uh, from um, a couple people who worked in the main office who helped get the uh, sponsorship. So uh, also uh, in charge of dealing with um, title sponsors as well as non-title sponsors. Um, And this kind of relates to like putting out fires. Um, Like I remember Dave Letiri would have to put out fires often uh, that would sprout up. And a lot of these would would come about because a racer uh, would not use sponsored equipment. Um, uh, Another time uh, racers were not uh, wearing helmets uh, during a training ride. So kind of a funny story about both of these during my time with uh, Dave and the Chevrolet LA Sheriff team. Um, We had a sponsor, uh, a handlebar sponsor, handlebar and stem sponsor um, that uh, was not great. Um, 
and actually I think it was the handlebar sponsor and the riders didn't like the handlebars because uh, you know racers can be very uh, very finicky when it comes to their parts um, on their bikes they like their fit just a certain way and it makes a big difference to them um, whether it's uh, physical or psychological doesn't matter it makes a difference to them and they they need to be in a certain position and some handlebars wouldn't allow that so we had to do a few tweaks and every now and then somebody would be caught riding a different handlebar than what was the team sponsored equipment. And that was Dave's job to talk to the sponsor and the rider and to work it out. Um, kind of, kind of a pain, but kind of part of the life of uh, director sportif and running a cycling team. Um, and another time we were on a trip, I think we were was with the same team, Chevrolet LA Sheriff's, and we were on the East Coast, uh, I think in North Carolina, and um, we had some time in between races, and the the team had a um, had a kind of a program for safe kids, getting kids to school safe, kids riding bikes safely. Um, it was it was a pretty cool program. So the 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 manager of the team, Sarge, we called him. Um, would um, run clinics uh, along with one of his uh, employees. I forget his name at the time, um, but they would go to schools and they would talk to kids about, um, you know, what do we do when we ride? We wear helmets. What do we do? We're safe when we cross cross streets and and whatnot. And and uh, at one of these meetings in North Carolina, they said, "What do we do? We wear helmets." And then one of the kids raised their hand and said, "Well, the pros don't wear helmets when they ride." And apparently a couple guys from the team were out on a training ride. And while they left the hotel with their helmets, they stashed them in a bush um, right down the street and went on a ride without helmets. And uh, they kind of got busted. So I think they got fined. Um, I was never privy to the that kind of information about what the fine was and how that all went down. But I thought that was that was kind of funny. Um, so, so there's that. So the director sportif really has... Um, has a lot to do. They're typically a super, super busy person. Um, and it takes a lot of different skill sets to be able to do it and to do it well. So in, in my time as a bicycle race mechanic, I worked with uh, many different uh, director sportifs. Um, so here's a list of, of just uh, some of the ones I can remember. Um, when I worked with USA Cycling, um, I worked with Chris Carmichael, uh, Henny Top, uh, Yuri Manus, Craig Griffin, Yarick Beck, uh, David Meyer Oaks, and Clark Natwick. Those are the ones I remember. There might have been more in there. And then when I worked for the first pro team I worked for, Chevrolet LA Sheriffs, uh, my director sportif was Dave Latiri. Um, and then I worked for the Saturn Cycling team after that. and. The main director sportif was Renee Wenzel, and then after that, a few others that I worked with were uh, Doug Kaufman, Karen Bliss, and Jim Copeland. So I'm going to kind of go through and talk about each one um, and uh, my experience with them. Um, some are interesting and funny. So the first, my first uh, one that I'm going to do is Chris Carmichael. So when I started at USA Cycling, Chris uh, was the men's road coach. Um, or director sportif, however you want to call it. Um, and shortly after I started, uh, Yuri Maines took over as the director sportif for the men's road team after some uh, USA Cycling job shifting. So anyone that, that follows cycling knows that Chris Carmichael, they know the name. Um, 
He was a racer for 7-Eleven uh, back in the day, the first American team to ever be in the Tour de France. Um, so uh, Chris has tons of experience. Uh, and he was um, the director for that first year I was at uh, USA Cycling. Um, and then, like I said, they switched with Yuri. And then the second year, I actually got to work with Chris as the director sportif for only one race together. And that was uh, during the Tour du Pont on the East Coast in 1994. I remember uh, Chris was, uh, he could be pretty intense at times. Um, uh, he seemed to be at odds with a few of the other director sportifs, um, which was kind of interesting. I remember Lynn, Lynn Pettyjohn, I think, was the Coors Light director. I didn't, there was some friction there. And, uh, but for me, from my part, he was really easy to work with, um, and he did not micromanage at all and he was actually uh, kind of a pleasure to work with. And now uh, Chris has his own company, it's uh, called CTS, and it's Carmichael Training Systems, where he uh, has a group of people who help uh, train cyclists. Uh, and he does a lot of stuff on cyclists that are over 50 because he's over 50 and that's a big part of the cycling community. And I'm over 50, so I read some of the stuff that he sends out and it's it's some pretty good stuff so it's definitely worth checking out so that that's chris carmichael so at during my time at usa cycling i worked with uh, several other uh, directors um, and uh, henny top was one i didn't get to work with her very much but she was the the director for the women's uh, national team she was a former racer as well from europe she was she was really uh, fun to work with um, really, really, really good lady. Um, and then I did a story, I think early on in one of my podcasts about Yuri Manus. Um, he was the director the first year I worked with USA Cycling on many of the trips. And he was, he was very interesting with his broken English and his, um, and his mannerisms and being in the caravan with Yuri was, was interesting, especially in the beginning. Cause I couldn't tell what he was saying. And he drove, he drove pretty crazy. Uh, but for the most part, he he did his job pretty well. And he really, much like a lot of the the Eastern Bloc uh, directors that I worked with over the years, they really knew how to take care of their team, um, take care of their cyclists, their, their, uh, their people. You know, when it came down to it, they would do what it took to um, get their riders what they needed. So um, that was Yuri. He was he was really fun and I, I forget which podcast I do a story on him. It might have been one of my first couple um, about Yuri and that's kind of a fun story if you want to go back and and listen a little bit more about those early days with Yuri. Um, Craig Griffin was another uh, USA Cycling uh, director but he was kind of more the co the road coach or not road uh, sorry the uh, track coach. I didn't have to work with him too often but he was from New Zealand uh, Kind of an interesting fellow. I didn't really get to know him too well. He he was he was fairly decent to the mechanics. Uh, he would get mad at us at times if things weren't exactly the way he wanted them, but that's pretty normal with a director. Uh, and then another director from USA Cycling uh, that I worked with quite a bit, and I think I did some a little bit of, of a story on this guy as well, is Jarek Beck uh, from uh, Lotz, Poland. I also did. A story about Yarek back when he worked with my friend Dave Pitts in the women's uh, Tour de France. Uh, it's Dave's first trip to Europe. Um, I forget which episode that is, but that's uh, it is in the in the description of the podcast if you want to hear about Dave's first trip to Europe with Yarek back. 
Yarick was another one of those East Eastern Bloc uh, country directors who who really knew how to t- take care of the cyclists. And and the one thing about Yarick was also he really knew how to have a good time uh, when the race was over. He he enjoyed drinking a little bit and he enjoyed uh, checking out the sites uh, wherever we might be. Uh, well, a funny thing about him is when he would drink, he seemed to be somewhat allergic to alcohol. So his his cheeks and his face would get really red when he would drink. So uh, beyond that, I don't think it had much of an effect on him. But uh, he was he was a really fun uh, director to have around. He was good in the caravan. He was good with the racers um, all around um, a really a really decent guy. And then uh, next USA Cycling director I remember was David Meyer Oaks. Um, a former racer as well, whose career was ended, uh, sadly, a little bit too early by a, a really bad crash um, at a finish line. Um, we only worked with uh, DMO, as they call him, at the Settimana Bergamasca in uh, Italy one year, the second year with USA Cycling. He was pretty good. Um, he was a decent guy. He had some fun stories uh, that he would share in the caravan when uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on. Uh, and then my final one that I remember from USA Cycling was Clark Natwick, who actually was the U.S. Uh, national cyclocross champion for a couple years in the 80s. Uh, Clark was uh, a decent guy, uh, did quite a few trips with him, did one to South Africa, and uh, I forget a couple others, I think maybe maybe the tour of West Virginia and... Um, I don't remember what other ones, but Clark was a good guy. He actually was from uh, the town that I lived in, at Pacifica, uh, in the coast of California, about 15 miles south of San Francisco. So he was kind of a little bit of a local legend, so it was kind of fun to work with him. Uh, and then and then after that, those were my days at USA Cycling with my different director sportifs. And then, and then I went and worked for my first professional team, and my director sportif there was probably my favorite of all time. It was Dave Latiri from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, what can I say about Dave? Dave was, he hired me over the phone after I had worked with the USA cycling team. He called me at a shop I was working at during the off season and said, hey, do you want to work uh, for Chevrolet LA, LA Sheriff cycling team? We're based out of Santa Barbara and we'd like to hire you. And Dave had seen me when I worked with the USA uh, cycling team and he needed a mechanic. His had uh, moved on. Um, so I took the job and moved to Santa Barbara and and worked for Dave for two years until our sponsorship wore out, um, kind of ended. I probably would still be there today if we were still sponsored by Chevrolet um, to this day. So I worked for uh, for Dave and the Chevrolet team for from 1995 and uh, 1996, and Dave was uh, he was the do it all director sportif. It wasn't a huge team. I think we only had maybe ten racers on the team, maybe eleven, um, and he pretty much took care of almost everything. And logistically, he was he was uh, he was a wizard with the logistics of getting to places where to stay, when to leave, when to get on to the next race, um, airport runs, uh, all that stuff. Dave was great. He was uh, sometimes in the beginning when we first started working together, he was a little bit of a micromanager. Um, 
but that's to be understood. He didn't really know me that well yet. And then once we got to know each other and he knew that I knew what I was doing, he pretty much uh, left me alone and just gave me direction as to what to do. And I would take care of it. Um, in the caravan, Dave was pretty good. He was pretty young compared to a lot of the other director sportives at the time. Uh, he, they would often uh, play jokes on him because um, they knew that they knew that in our our caravan vehicle we had a uh, we had a scanner. So on, and on that scanner, police scanner, we could hear the other teams talking to their racers. And one of the teams we could hear really well was the Motorola team at the time, um, who had. Uh, at the time, it was Lance Armstrong and I think uh, Henkapi, and the and uh, and uh, Jim Okowitz was the director, and and Jim knew that Dave could hear what Jim was saying to the racers, so they would mess with Dave sometimes. And one time, I remember they said uh, they said over the radio that they were going to attack in the feed zone, and and Dave kind of Dave fell for that one and and got on the radio and told all our racers that that uh, Motorola was going to attack in the feed zone and to watch out. And it turned out to just be a big joke because uh, Bobby Julek, who had been on the Chevrolet team before, was now on Motorola, and he knew that Dave could hear what they were saying. So they, they kind of set that up. So Dave was a little embarrassed by that, but it was also kind of funny. He took it pretty well. Um, so that was Dave. Um, at some point, I'd love to do an interview with Dave because Dave is an interesting guy. He... He has, uh, at this time, he owns a bike shop in Santa Barbara. It's called Fast Track, and it's, uh, it's a really cool shop. Um, it's right off uh, State Street. I think it's still on Cannon Perdido. I think, that's the, I think that's the name of the street it's on, but it's downtown Santa Barbara, and it's pretty much a road shop. It's got a TV in there and a big couch and lots of cool bikes. And uh, before that, uh, when Dave, before Dave was director, of uh, Chevrolet LA Sheriff's. Dave was a racer himself and he was a track racer. Uh, he was road and track and he actually went to the Olympics in Seoul, uh, Korea and was on the team pursuit uh, on the on the track. So, um, and now he owns a bike shop that's been doing really well for since, I think he started it right after the team kind of folded after the 96 season. So he's been in business for a long time and has quite a following. Anyway, that's Dave. And then moving on to the Saturn cycling team, uh, I had uh, some different directors there. The main one was Rene Wenzel. Uh, Rene Wenzel was uh, a really cool guy. He's a European, uh, Danish, um, married to an American uh, woman. Rene uh, and Kendra started uh, Wenzel Coaching, um, which still exists to this day. I don't know how involved in it Rene is. I think he's working overseas for... Uh, I think it might be the Indian uh, Cycling Federation um, as a coach or a director. Um, but Rene was a, a really fun guy to work with. He knew how to have a good time. He was a genius uh, when it came to uh, came to race uh, tactics. And he was, I did a little story about directors a while ago about some of the skills that it requires as far as driving. And Rene was one of the better the better drivers in the caravan. Um, he could be on a couple different phone calls while handing up a water bottle and navigating the caravan all at the same time and still be pretty calm about it at the end of the day. He was, uh, he was probably my second favorite uh, director to work with behind uh, Dave. Um, Renee knew how to, like I said, Renee knew how to have a good time and he still probably does. 
and uh, we used to go out and have some great meals together as a team and uh, Renee was a big part of that I remember having a really good time with him and he would in the caravan he would tell me lots of stories about when he raced when he was much younger and uh, one of the stories was kind of interesting he talked about how during a road race once he somehow both brake cables uh, broke at the same time and it was fairly early in the race and he was kind of ended up in the group uh what they call in the peloton it's called the laughing group it's the group that gets dropped from the main racers that you never see on tv they're the it's a pretty big group that all kind of makes it to the finish together usually on a mountainous day the non-climbers and they kind of live to survive another day but they kind of race together ride together in that laughing group and i think he ended up in that group after his cables broke and everybody in the group knew that Renee's uh, brake cables had broken. So there apparently there was no support around to get a bike change or anything. So they all kind of helped him and held on to him and helped him slow down on the downhills, which slowed down the group a lot. But at the end of the day, they were all uh, allowed to race the next day because of uh, they were all kind of helping Renee out. So that was kind of a cool story. Um, and then another director I remember working with was Doug Kaufman, who was... Uh, kind of one of those USA cycling kind of regional coaches. Uh, he was, he was an interesting fella. He was, uh, I worked a couple races with him. I remember I worked the, uh, the Ruta Mexico the second year when I worked for Saturn, he was the director for that race. And that race was a total disaster. And if, if you haven't, uh, listened to that podcast, it's called the, the two Rutas, uh, that I worked, um, and Doug was the director for the the time that I was with the Saturn team. And, and, uh, it was, it was a really, it was a tough race because we didn't get any of our equipment and, uh, the, the riders were having a hard time. We didn't have great wheels cause we had to borrow wheels and they had 13 tooth cogs on the back instead of 12s. So they were spinning out too much. And it was, it was a tough one, but, but Doug, uh, seemed to be able to keep things a little bit light and, and uh, we kind of made it through that. And he also was a director for the uh, for the tour of the Gila in New Mexico, which was kind of close to his home base. Um, Doug was uh, one of my, my friend Dave Pitts used to say that Doug looked at the world through uh, rosy colored glasses too often, uh, which is kind of funny from an upstate New Yorker, given the guy from the mellow guy from New Mexico a hard time, which was which was fine with me because it was funny. Uh, one time in the caravan we had uh we had these saturn vehicles that had heated seats and we were at a race in new mexico in the summer that was really hot and to mess with uh with doug i think that dave turned on the 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 seat warmer and doug didn't realize it the entire race and he got really warm and he had no idea why his uh why his butt was so hot which was kind of funny but anyway that was doug kaufman uh and then after that, uh, there was, I think, maybe only one race I worked with, Karen Bliss, uh, as a director. She was a former racer as well. Um, I remember Karen was a little unsure of herself as a director, but she she seemed to have the respect of the racers. And she she was she was pretty lighthearted. She was pretty easy to work with, um, except for the one time that I got out of the car to do a wheel change and she ran over my foot. Um, that was, uh, not so fun, but I'm not the only mechanic that's ever happened to. So sometimes when the director stops, they don't stop all the way when a racer gets a flat and they continue to roll a little bit. Um, and if the mechanic gets out and puts their foot under where that wheel's going to roll to, you get run over. 
So I didn't break any bones or anything, but it was uh, painful for a few days. But anyway, and then the last director that I remember was Jim Copeland, who was one of my favorite racers, super cool guy, the Alabama slammer, they called him. He was a kind of a bigger guy for a cyclist, but had tons of power. Um, he was a director for one of the, the Saturn uh, team cycling team races um, the second year, I believe. And Jim was actually one of the racers on the Chevrolet LA Sheriff's team uh, with Dave Letiri. And Jim, I believe, was on the team pursuit team that Dave Letiri was on in the Seoul Olympics. And I believe that was in 1988. So I hope I didn't leave anybody out, but those were the directors that I worked with that I remember. Uh, uh, being a director sportif seems to be a very difficult job. It seems to be pretty stressful uh, during race and not during the race. Uh, if your team performs, it's great. If your team is not performing, then it kind of all goes on you um, as to why that's not happening, as it does often in other sports that we follow. So uh, hats off to director sportifs uh, everywhere. And I would like to move on at this point to my favorite bike race of all time, even from when I was just starting to be a mechanic and just started working in a shop and just started following bike races. And it is the Giro d'Italia. Everybody talks about the Tour, the Tour de France. The Tour de France, it's great. But the Giro is a little bit different. Um, it's a lot different. My first early memories of the Giro were, I believe, in around the late 80s, maybe 1988, was, uh, I remember reading about how on the final stage, which was a time trial, Greg LeMond got fifth place. And he had been coming back, making a comeback from his, uh, his accident um, and his various injuries, and he got fifth place, and he followed that up by a win in the Tour de France, I believe, in 1989. It was 88 or 89 Giro, but anyway, he got fifth, and I, back then, there was no internet. Surprise. We had to find out uh, this stuff by either looking at the newspaper the day after the race, or I do believe there was a number that you could call a phone number and I don't know if it had if it was connected to Velo News or somehow, but you could call a number and find out who had won races each day and stuff like that. It was nothing like today. Uh, without the internet and the TV coverage that we get today, it was a very different event. Um, so I kind of I I did a little bit of research on the Giro, but I found this book. Uh, it's called The Beautiful Race. It's the story of the Giro d'Italia, and it's by Colin O'Brien. And I'm going to, uh, over the next several weeks, I'm going to read a little bit about this and and uh, kind of read some of it to you and then convey some of my thoughts about this race because it's, it's really a very unique race. So a celebration of the Giro d'Italia and its kaleidoscopic glory after more than 100 stagings of this glorious race. Born in 1909, the Giro d'Italia captured the imagination of a nation before helping to unite it in the chaos following World War II. Since then, this dynamic race has reflected its home country. The Giro's capricious and unpredictable nature mirrors the passions and extremes of Italy itself. A desperately hard race through a beautiful country, the Giro has bred characters and stories that dramatize the shifting culture and society of its home. There was Alfonsina Strada who cropped her hair and raced against the men in 1924. And we will read some more about that. 
and Ottavio Botecchia expected to challenge for the winner's Maglia Rosa, the famed pink jersey, in 1928 until he was killed on a training ride, most likely by Mussolini's black shirts. And what would a book be about the Giro d'Italia without Fausto Coppi, the metropolitan playboy with amphetamines in his veins guided by a mystic blind masseur who seemed to glide up the peaks. And let us not forget his arch-rival, Gino Bartali, humble, pious, and brave, who smuggled papers for prosecuted Jewish Italians. Then there is the Giro's most tragic hero, Marco Pantani, born to climb but fated to lose. Halted only by world wars, the Giro has been contested for over a century, and the beautiful race is a highly rich written celebration of this legendary sporting event. So I would like to move on by reading a little bit of the introduction. And the introduction kind of gives us a little bit of a, a, a feeling as to uh, what Italy was like in 1909. Um, so imagine a different Italy, a recently integrated kingdom of regions mostly inhabited by peasantry. Almost half of the population was illiterate and the majority spoke dialect rather than the Florentine standard of the state. Even the country's first king, Victor Emmanuel II, father of the fatherland, struggled to use his country's official language. What roads existed were rough and narrow and rarely, if ever, paved. Away from the cobbled urban centers, mostly there were, there were nothing more than compacted dirt and gravel. Great for gravel riding, I guess. The masses relied on mules and bicycles, not cars, for labor and transport. The Fabrica Italiana Automobili Torino, Fiat, was less than a decade old and some, some way away from becoming one of Europe's greatest automotive giants. Rome, Milan, Turin, and Naples were all experiencing rapid growth, but the majority of the country's 32 million inhabitants lived in small towns or in the countryside. The capital was still plagued by malaria from the dreaded Pontine marshes, and it would be 20 years before the Italian government resolved its, its dispute with the Vatican. Having forcibly annex annexed the Papal States in 1870, Giuseppe Garibaldi, the, the general and politician who was born in Nice, but would go to, on to lead the Risorgimento, Italy's unification had only died 27 years ago. The country was rapidly changing, and the Giro d'Italia was both a reflection and a reaction to that fact. The Founding Fathers' desire to build a modern state, the creation of the Kingdom of Italy, and the attempted integration of its diverse, remote, and often contradictory constituent parts were still more than current affairs, than ancient history, than the race's first edition rolled away from the Gazzetta del Sport's office in Milan, Bazar Loreto in 1909. As strange and as modern a contraption as the bicycle must have seen to look to onlookers, the very idea of having an Italy to ride around was most likely just an intriguing, as intriguing a curiosity. Cycling fans in the Bel Passe sometimes joke that the race has done more to unite Italy than Garibaldi's reforms ever managed. And while this is said with tongue planted firmly in cheek, perhaps there's a 
a grain of truth to it, because in the early 20th century, this was still very much a country divided. Much of the North was against integration, as was the Vatican. And while Naples and the South supported it, that led to more to, more to do with the disdain for the Bourbon royal family of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies than it did with any, any real enthusiasm for the new state. L'Italia di Fiata observed Massimo D'Azelgio, the Prime Minister of Sardinia and supporter of unification. Italy has been made. Now we must make Italians. Italy is a land of inconsistencies and complications. No one who's, who's ever spent any time here will describe it as easy. And yet, there's a part of the, that's part of the charm. It's also a huge part of the Giro's soul, because unlike the Tour de France, which can sometimes seem prosaic and anemic in its homogeny, the Italian event is chaotic, unabashed celebration of the country's colorful, often schizophrenic personality. You can be cramped in the, in the crumbling streets of Naples one day and at the altitude of the Alpine Ski Resort the next. So really, in the end, the, the Giro is, is born to sell newspapers uh, by a newspaper company, um, kind, of, kind of the same way that the Tour de France was in, I believe, 1903 was the first year of the Tour de France. And so the, the, first, the first Giro in 1909, and the, I believe the first four uh, or five um, Giros were, were the way that they decided who won the race was a little different than we do today. We didn't have back then, obviously, the modern uh, timing equipment to do it by time, so it was done by placement. So if you got first place, you got one point. If you got second place, you got two points. So over the course of the race, the, the racer with the lowest accumulated points was the winner. And in a few instances, the, the racer who may have, if it was done by time, won by a half an hour, did not end up winning because it was a different scoring system then. So I kind of find that really interesting. And the, um, the first version of the race was uh, 3,000 kilometers of racing, and it had 25,000 lira uh, worth of prizes, which was a lot of money in 1909. Uh, so, and the way they did it was the, the 3,000 kilometers was, um, was the initial what they wanted to do, but it ended up, I believe, the first... Uh, race ended up being uh, 2,400 kilometers of racing, but I believe it was only six stages, but each stage was uh, two to 300 kilometers long, um, and it was kind of a little bit of a race of attrition at the time, uh, and in these first uh, years of the Giro, there, I don't think they went into the mountains, um, so it was a lot of uh, lower land, rolling hills of Italy kind of racing, and it was, but the races were super long, so like I said, it was kind of a race of attrition by the end, uh, uh, flat tires, crashes, and such um, would uh, seal the fate for many of the racers um, at the time. So, so the other thing about that I found kind of interesting is that early on in the Giro, um, after a a race, they would um, they would have sometimes uh, two days, two two uh, days to rest from that race, which is kind of nice because uh, these races were really long. So I'll kind of finish up here with a little bit about the first stage, and then uh, we will call it quits for the day. 
So uh, both amateurs and professionals were welcome to compete, which I thought was really interesting. And 127 riders were present um, at the Maiden Grand Pretenza on 13th of May, 1909. The first stage of the Giro d'Italia left Milan's Pizzale Loreto at 2.53 a.m. on a grueling 397-kilometer slog south to Bologna. Rather than using total elapsed time to calculate the overall winner, as is now common, the Giro used a point system, like I said, system to work out the general classification, adding up to the placings of each stage uh, to find the rider with the lowest number of points. So that was obviously well before timing of today, and a 397-kilometer race is kind of a race of attrition, and we also need to remind ourselves about the technology that existed in 1909, and the technology was a single speed bicycle that weighed as much as three times as much as modern bike uh, bicycle racers are on today on their carbon fiber machines with their uh, two by 11 or 12 speed uh, bicycles a single speed bike weighing let's say 35 45 pounds so imagine that so we will continue on and learn a little bit more about the Giro next time. Um, I find this book very fascinating, and I hope that you do too, and I hope that you enjoyed this version of the Bicycle Mechanics podcast, and we will see you next time, and in the meantime, stay safe out there.